This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. You're invited to join us at our worship assemblies each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. There's a lot of things we could talk about tonight to start the meeting. I can't think of any better way to start a meeting than to talk about Jesus. I want to talk to you tonight about Christ, okay? There's so much that we could talk about pertaining to Christ and who he was and what he did. We could talk about his teaching, his doctrine, which was astonishing to the people that heard him. We could talk about his miracles, which were many and amazing. And I don't want to talk about the things that Jesus suffered. I want to talk about the sufferings of Christ. I'd ask you to turn in your Bible and follow along as we go through the lesson. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. This is where the Bible says, Though he were a son, it's talking about Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, the word perfect here means complete, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. This verse here talks about the things that Christ suffered. When we think about the sufferings of Christ, many times our minds immediately go to the cross, right? Because that's indeed where Jesus suffered tremendously and that's where he died for the salvation of your sins and mine and Jesus experienced some excruciating suffering when he hung on the cross and when he died but what I want you to see tonight from the scriptures is that Jesus was well acquainted with suffering long before he went to the cross in fact Jesus suffered in many different ways throughout his life from the day of his birth on down to the day of his death, Jesus lived a life that was characterized by many different types of suffering. Jesus lived his life in the shadow of an ever-looming cross. And as Jesus walked life's pathway in the shadow leading him up to that cross, he walked a pathway that was littered and strewn with all different types of suffering. Tonight, we're going to talk about some of the ways that he suffered. I'm going to submit to you that I believe in some ways, some very specific ways, Christ suffered at birth, and I believe he also suffered as an infant. You may have never stopped to consider or think about ways he suffered at birth or as an infant, but let me share some things with you from the scriptures to help you see that. Now, certainly as a young man, uh, we can also look at scriptures which would lead us to believe that Jesus would have suffered, especially when Jesus began his ministry after his baptism, Jesus suffered a lot. He suffered things like temptation. He suffered rejection. He suffered persecution. He suffered poverty. He suffered betrayal and injustice. He suffered beatings and humiliation. He suffered scourging. The last hours of his life, he suffered a crown of thorns to be placed on his head. The last thing he suffered in this life was crucifixion. We're going to go to the Bible and see what it has to say about these sufferings of Christ. Let's start off talking about some of the ways in which Christ might have suffered at birth. We're going to read about the birth of Jesus in just a moment. But before we do, I want to ask you a question. In your own mind, I want you to think about the type of birth that Jesus deserved. What 
what kind of birth would have been befitting for Christ? I don't know what you imagine in your mind. I can tell you only in my mind, in my imagination, what I think of when I think about, well, that would be a birth that would be appropriate or fitting for Christ, the only Son of God. Jesus would be born in the world's most beautiful mansion. Okay? And that mansion would set up high on top of one of the most beautiful mountains on the face of the planet. And, you know, because he is the Son of God and he's the one who was actively involved in the creation of everything in the universe and because he would come and live a perfect life, it just seems fitting that everything would have to be perfect, right? For Christ to come into the world, the temperature would be perfect, the humidity would be perfect, everything would be perfect. There wouldn't be any clouds in the sky. The stars would be shining extra bright right and Mary his mother would would give birth on the world's most comfortable bed and there'd be a hundred of the world's best doctors right there at her bedside and the people would bring gifts you know we do that we have a tradition of uh, showering expectant parents with gifts we give them baby shower right people would show up with gifts and they'd just bring mountains and mountains of gifts that's those are the kind of things I imagine when I think about a birth that would be appropriate and fitting for Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God what does the Bible say about the birth of Jesus we're gonna read that from Luke chapter 2 verses 4 to 7 the Bible says and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David which is called Bethlehem he went there because he was of the house and lineage of David. He went there to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. It was time to have a baby. Verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I want you to notice something here. There's no mention of a castle. There's no mention of a beautiful mountain. No mention of a comfortable bed or any doctors. The birth of Jesus was a whole lot different than the one that I envision in my mind when I think of a birth that would be fitting for him. The Bible says that when he was born, they laid him in a manger. You know what a manger is? A manger is a trough for feeding animals. When Jesus was born, they laid him in a feed trough and wrapped him in some, some rags. Not a very glamorous birth, was it? <laughs> Not very glamorous at all. You know who came to welcome Jesus into this world? Did they come by the thousands and bring mountains of gifts? Their Bible doesn't use the word barn in Luke chapter 2. It doesn't use the word barn either in Matthew chapter 2 where it talks about the birth of Jesus. But it, in all likelihood, Jesus was probably born and laid in a place that probably resembled a barn, a place for probably storing and feeding animals. Not a very glamorous birth for the one that would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know who welcomed him into this world? Maybe a few stable animals that might have been there and then some dirty shepherds come up out of the hills to welcome him into the world. The point I'm trying to make with this and connecting it to suffering 
is that Jesus suffered himself to come into this world in the meekest and lowliest of manners. He deserved something far, far better than this. But he humbled himself and he suffered himself to come into the world in this way. So in that very specific way, we could look at this and say, well, yeah, he, he lowered himself down far above what he deserved and he suffered in that way to come into the world in a very meek and mild way. In what ways did Jesus suffer as an infant? In Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 the Bible says and when they were departed now this is talking about wise men who came from the east following a star they found Mary, Joseph and Jesus and presented gifts unto him. When those wise men were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he, Joseph, arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. He was angry, and he sent forth and slew. He murdered all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast or the areas uh, round about thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping. Great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. In an attempt to kill little baby Jesus, okay? The Bible doesn't really tell us how many. We could only imagine maybe dozens, maybe hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands. All the little innocent babies under two years old in Bethlehem and in the areas round about were slaughtered at the hands of a madman named Herod. Herod really didn't have any problems with all those little babies. He had a problem with one baby, baby Jesus. But by God's providence and plan and the warning given to Joseph in the dream, Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus escaped to Egypt and avoid the slaughter of the infants in the city of Bethlehem. Now, why don't you stop and think about this. I think it's quite likely that Bethlehem's parents eventually learned that, you know, Herod really wasn't, didn't have any problem with all those little babies. He had a problem with one baby, baby Jesus. And by the very fact that Joseph and Mary came to their town of Bethlehem and had their son Jesus and left, that very fact right there resulted in the death of all those little babies in and around Bethlehem. Can you imagine that? What it would be like to learn that I lost my child because of that Joseph and that Mary and that little baby Jesus. Joseph and Mary still had their baby. They were safe in Egypt. But because they came to my town and had their baby and left, I don't have my baby anymore. 
Do you think that some of Bethlehem's parents might have had a, a misplaced sense of anger and hatred toward Joseph and Mary and Jesus for the very fact that they showed up in Bethlehem and had a baby? I bet they did. Jesus' reputation and the reputation of his family began to suffer tremendously. From the days that he was an infant, he would, him and his family would have developed a reputation, a very negative one, in and around the city of Bethlehem. And in that very specific way, we could see how that he and his family, their reputation would have suffered greatly in the days of Jesus' infancy. How would Jesus have suffered as a young man? I want you to look at Luke 9.22. Luke 9.22. In Luke 9.22, Jesus plainly tells his disciples, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He says, I'm going to suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. He, he tells them what's going to happen. He tells them what's going to happen. Could, could you imagine waking up every day just to realize that this reality was one day closer to know how it's all going to end to know how it's all going to go down and to realize that it's just one day closer see Jesus I believe probably knew this from the age of a young man he, he knew his purpose in coming to this world and he knew his fate and he knew how his life would end when Jesus was 12 years old, him and his family went to Jerusalem, I believe it was, to celebrate the Passover. And after the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over and they were returning back home, remember the story in Luke 2 where Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus wasn't, in, uh, wasn't with the group returning back home, so they rushed back to Jerusalem to find him. You remember that? Remember they found him teaching the lawyers and the scribes at the young age of 12? Remember that? And they confront Jesus, if you allow me to paraphrase, they say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You remember Jesus' response to his parents at the young age of 12? Luke 2, 49. He said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not, or don't you know, that I must be about my father's business? At the young age of 12, Jesus knew he had business to take care of in this world, and the business was the business of the father. He knew what that business would entail. He knew the prophecies concerning him as the Messiah. He knew the prophecy of David in Psalm 22, verse 16. David said, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. That's a, what we call a messianic prophecy, a prophecy pointing forward to the crucifixion of Jesus. A thousand years before it happened, David penned these words. Jesus knew that this prophecy pertained to him and he would go to a cross and fulfill it. He knew they would someday pierce his hands and his feet. He knew the prophecies of Isaiah 53, the prophecies of a suffering Savior. Isaiah 53 and 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus knew 
that these prophecies pertain to him as the Messiah. And he would fulfill every one of them. He would suffer everything that Isaiah lays out there in Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus would fulfill all of that and suffer all that. Probably knew it from his years as a, as a young man. Now, again, imagine waking up every day of your life just to realize that those sufferings were one day closer. Is that not suffering? I believe it is. We sang a song tonight about the intensity of that suffering as it built and built and built on down to his final evening there in Gethsemane praying. That's the worst kind of suffering right there. It's that slow, unyielding type of suffering. You know what it's like? It's like living on death row. Do you think Jesus knew what it was like to live on death row? He did. But it wasn't because of any crime that he had committed. It was because he would go and pay the price for your sins and mine. So in that way, he would have suffered, I imagine, a lot of anxiety. I know I would suffer anxiety daily if I knew this was my ultimate end. Jesus suffered that way probably as a young man. As after Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized by John in the River Jordan. And shortly thereafter, the Bible says he was in the wilderness. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was tempted by the very voice of Satan himself. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus was tempted three different times by the very voice of the devil himself. And in all three temptations, Jesus relied on the word of God to help him endure the temptation that was before him. The Bible says that there was a reason, a purpose behind him suffering this temptation. Hebrews 2 and 18 says, For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor, the word succor means to help, aid, or assist them that are tempted. He subjected himself to the same types of temptations that you and I face in the flesh. And he overcome every one of them. And he did that for a reason, so he can help you and I through our temptations. You know, sometimes, we, if we're not careful, we get the mentality that, well, people just don't know what kind of temptation I'm, I'm subjected to. People just don't know how hard it is for me to overcome this sin or this temptation. You know, in, in reality, we're the ones who don't understand temptation. Not like Jesus did. Until you are tempted three different times after 40 days of fasting by the voice of the devil himself, you and I really are the ones who don't understand temptation. Jesus understood it. He faced it head on and endured temptation so he could help you and I through our temptations. He suffered temptation just like you and I do. Christ also suffered a lot of rejection. Jesus was able to draw crowds of thousands of people that followed him at different times in his ministry but let me tell you there was also a lot of people that turned their back on Jesus. In John chapter 7 verse 3 the Bible says his brethren, his, this is, he's talking about his family here his extended family. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. 
For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. He himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, shew or, de or demonstrate, shew thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. You know what they're really doing here? They're, they're mocking Jesus. Right? They say all this sarcastically, sort of tongue-in-cheek. If you really are who you say you are, Jesus, well, go, go show yourself to the world. They're chiding him. You know why? They didn't believe in him. That's what verse 5 says. They didn't believe in him. He was rejected by his own brethren, his own family. Rejected him and who he was and his mission. You ever been rejected by a family member? That's hard. It's tough. Jesus knows what that feels like. He suffered that too. Jesus was rejected by many of his disciples. In John chapter 7, verse 54, Jesus uh, says this statement in connection with the prior statement. If you go back into the chapter uh, previous to this, prior to this, Jesus makes a statement. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness or dead, but I'm the bread that's come down from heaven, the bread of life. In connection with that teaching, he says this in verse 54. He says, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Now, how did his disciples receive this teaching? We skip down to verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? Come on, Jesus. You mean you want us to eat your flesh and drink your blood? How, how can we do that? How can we receive this teaching? What they didn't understand, or probably didn't want to understand, is he wasn't talking about them physically, literally eating his flesh and his blood. He was not a literal loaf of bread that descended out of the clouds of heaven. But he said, I'm the bread of life. He was talking in spiritual terms, in a figurative sense. Okay? But they completely missed it, didn't want to receive it. They were offended at this teaching. What was the result? Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They turned their backs on Jesus walked away if they had only known they were walking away from the savior of the world the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the planet he was rejected by many of his disciples yeah they followed him by the thousands on the day of his crucifixion how many stood with him how many stood with him the Bible says a few of the women stood afar off beholding him hanging on the cross. Jesus suffered rejection. He was rejected by his own people. John 7 and 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, that's the land of the Jews. Why? Because the Jews sought to kill him. John 1, 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Have you ever had to live with the legitimate fear that there was somebody or a group of people out there that given the opportunity they would take your life in a heartbeat I, I pray to God none of you have ever had to live in that kind of a world 
I never have. I mean, I've had some people along the way not, not like me. And I suppose we all have. I've never had anybody that I ever thought that if they had the chance, they'd kill me. That's everyday life for Jesus. He knew there's a group of people out there given the chance, they'd do it in a heartbeat. Is that not suffering? Is that not suffering? Not only did Jesus suffer rejection, he suffered persecution. Again, always. He was persecuted constantly. Much of the persecution came from the religious elite of his day, right? The scribes and the Pharisees and others were constantly dogging and persecuting Jesus. We get a couple examples of that in Matthew 9, Matthew uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. It came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Guilt by association, right? That's an easy one. Guilt by association. Just, just look at who he's sitting by. Just look, he's over there with those publicans, those tax collectors, and those sinners, those harlots, those prostitutes. Just look at who he hangs around. They are constantly trying to trying to get him with this one. What they didn't understand, what Jesus tried to explain to him, he said, I'm come to seek and to save that which was lost. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. These were the people who needed Jesus the most. So yeah, he sat down with them and ate with them, not with the purpose of participating in all their sinfulness, but with the person, the purpose of saving them from their sins. Well, the Pharisees, wouldn't, they wouldn't have that, right? No, he's guilt by, guilty by association. Another example of the persecution later in the chapter, Matthew 9, 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil. When the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. The multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. They bring this dumb man who has a, 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 an unclean spirit. Jesus casts him out, and he's healed. He's restored, and the people see it, and they say, We've never seen anything like this. You know what the Pharisees said? The Pharisees said, now notice here, they couldn't deny the miracle. It, it had been done right there before their eyes. They could not deny the miracle had been done. And if you can't deny that the miracle's been done, well, just deny the power by which it was done, right? They said, oh yeah, well, he, yeah, he's casting out devils all right, but he casteth out devils through... The prince of the devils, he's working with Satan to cast out Satan, right? <laughs> Jesus goes on to correct them for their faulty logic and reasoning. He says, every house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan's casting out Satan, his kingdom cannot stand. So Jesus could see right through all this persecution. And he had a wonderful and masterful way of addressing it head on. But this was constant. He was constantly persecuted. In the eyes of these people, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus couldn't do anything good. He couldn't do anything right. He's constantly suffering persecution like this. I'll tell you something else Jesus suffered. He suffered a life of poverty. Jesus lived the life of a poor man. He did. And you know, we're, we're so richly blessed in this country. We, we can't even begin to count and describe the blessings 
that God has blessed us with here in this land. Jesus, though, lived the life of a poor man. The man who multiplied bread and fishes never once multiplied gold or silver to make himself rich. I don't see why he couldn't have. Never did. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, and the individual approaches Jesus. Jesus tells this man, he says, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. At this point in his ministry, Jesus didn't have a place to sleep at night. I, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would bet to say that all of us have homes to go home to tonight. I bet those homes are comfortable places to live. I bet we've got a bed to climb into. We've probably got a pillow or two and a blanket to cover up with if we need to. If you've got a home, a bed, a pillow, and a blanket, I don't care what condition it's in, you've got more than Jesus had at this point in his ministry. He didn't have a place to lay his head at night. He suffered his way through a life of poverty, a life that a lot of us, thank God, will never have to experience and understand. He suffered it, though. Let me tell you something else Jesus suffered. He suffered betrayal. You ever been betrayed? You ever been betrayed by a close friend? Jesus did. He was betrayed by a close friend. Matthew 26, 48. Now he that betrayed him, that was Judas, one of his closest disciples, one of the apostles, one of the twelve. Now he that betrayed him, that's Judas, gave them, the Jews, a sign saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. He had arranged to betray Jesus with the Jews. He says, I'm going to go find him. I'm going to go put a kiss on his cheek. And that will let you know who, that that's your man. That's Jesus. That's the one you want. Verse 49, and forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. This is the arrest of Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus by his close friend Judas. What I want you to notice here, what did Jesus call Judas? In the hour of his betrayal, what did, what did he call him? Did he call him a murderer? Did he call him a backstabber? Did he call him a traitor? He called him friend. He said, friend, wherefore art thou come? I don't, I don't know why it is, but for some reason, I think we sometimes lose sight of the fact that Jesus and Judas were, they were close friends. You know what we do with our friends? We laugh with our friends. We cry with our friends. Jesus probably spent a lot of time laughing and crying with Judas. Betrayed by a friend. Is that not suffering? Jesus suffered injustice. We hear a lot said about injustice in the world today. 
And, and I'm here to tell you that there are many, many different types of injustice in the world today. In every nation, on every continent, with any group of people you could find, you don't, won't have to look very hard. For hard you're going to find some form of injustice. And it's never right. It's always wrong. God is a God of supreme divine justice. It's who he is. I'm here to tell you, though, despite what they might say about injustice on the TV or in the newspaper, there will never be a greater injustice. Never. Than the arrest, the phony trial, the conviction, and the murder of the only innocent man that ever walked the face of the earth. That was Jesus. There'll never be a greater injustice than in John 18, verse 38, Pilate, the Roman governor, examined Jesus after he was arrested. You know what Pilate said? I find in him no fault at all. This man hasn't done anything wrong. You know what Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and 2, speaking of Jesus, who did no sin. Jesus did no sin. Neither was guile, means deceit, found in his mouth. If we made a list of all the people in the world that deserved death by crucifixion, you know where Jesus would be on that list? The very bottom. I'd be above him on that list. Jace Henderson would be above him on that list. Dewey Watkins would be above him on that list. He'd be the absolute last person that would deserve death by crucifixion because he was the only person to live a sinless life. Yet they took the only sinless man the world had ever known and they hung him on a cross to die. There'll never be a greater injustice than that. Christ suffered beatings. Luke twenty-two sixty-three. the men that held him mocked him and smote him and they when they had blindfolded him they struck him on the face and asked him saying prophesy who is it that smote thee and many other things blasphemously spake they against him have you ever been treated this way I, I hope that none of you have ever been treated this way been physically beaten and abused like this I never have. But Jesus understood the physical pain and the suffering associated with these physical beatings that he endured after his betrayal and arrest. He was physically beaten. Not only did he suffer the pain associated with these physical beatings that he received, he suffered the humiliation of it all. In Mark chapter 14, verse 65, the Bible says, And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Have you ever been spit on? It, it doesn't get much more humiliating than that, does it? Be spit on? They spit in the face of God's only begotten Son. 
Matthew 27 says that in these moments, Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels. A legion of soldiers in the Roman army, I believe, was 6,000 soldiers. 12 legions, 6,000 soldiers apiece, if I'm doing the math right, that's 72,000 angels. The Lord could have called in that moment 72,000 angels to come and to catch every drop of that spittle out of thin air before it struck him on the face. He didn't. He didn't. He took the spit in the face. He did that for you and he did that for me. He suffered that humiliation. He suffered scourging. Matthew 27, 26, then released he Barabbas unto them. The Roman governor Pilate releases a prisoner named Barabbas. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot more than this about the scourging of Jesus. If you're not careful, you'll just read right over it here in this verse. But we want to stop and we want to understand and see that this this scourging that Jesus received here was not a trivial matter. It was a very painful punishment that was dealt out by the Romans. If Jesus was scourged according to Roman custom, historians, archaeologists have, have studied the, uh, the Roman tradition of scourging, and if Jesus was scourged according to that tradition, they tell us that it probably happened like this. Jesus was probably in all likelihood stripped of his clothes, probably tied to a column by his hands, and then a Roman soldier took in his hand the Roman scourge, and it looked like what you see there on the screen. It was a short-handled whip, and from that handle came out three or four leather-braided cords, and interwoven in those leather-braided cords were small pieces of metal, bone, and shrapnel. And you know what that little pieces of metal and, and bone and shrapnel was for? It was for the mutilation of Jesus' flesh as that Roman soldier applied that whip across his back time and time and time again. That's scourging. Now the Roman soldier handling this weapon was a highly trained professional. He knew exactly how many lashes to apply across a man's back and he knew exactly where to place them. Not to kill a man. It was easy to kill a man by scourging. That was no problem. They could do that all day long. The goal of scourging was not to kill a man. The goal of scourging was to bring a man within an inch of his life and then stop and let him suffer and let him bleed. That's what Jesus endured. That's what he experienced when the Bible says that Pilate delivered him to be scourged. He suffered that. He suffered a crown of thorns. He deserved a glorious crown. Instead, he willingly suffered a crown of thorns. Mark chapter, four, Mark chapter 15, verse 17. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. you imagine wearing a crown of thorns? on your head and having it beat into the flesh of your brow with a reed 
I can't even imagine. This time of year, I'll get out and do some, some yard work. Occasionally, I'll reach down and grab something that's got a thorn on it. And the smallest of thorns in my little finger is almost enough to bring me to tears. Imagine having a crown of thorns beat into your head. He suffered that. He suffered that. The last thing Jesus suffered in this earth life was crucifixion. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors, the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to study and try to understand what truly happens when a person is crucified. As Jesus hung on the cross, it would be nearly impossible to breathe. And that was due to the hyperextension of his lungs and his chest muscles as he hung under the weight of his own body on the cross. The only way to draw breath on the cross would be to lift the entire weight of a person's body upward only by their nail-pierced hands and their nail-pierced feet, which of course caused excruciating pain. Just to draw one breath, to lift oneself up and just let a little bit of air come down into those lungs, to go on living for just a few more moments, but after just a few more moments, you know what? It was time to do it all again. Every breath Jesus drew on the cross was torture. Every breath. And listen, this wasn't a five-minute deal. This wasn't five minutes and done deal. Jesus hung on the cross for hours. We've been here a little over an hour tonight. Jesus hung on that cross, enduring that pain, lifting himself upward, drawing in those breaths. He suffered that for hours. It's hard to imagine the pain. It's hard to imagine the agony. Jesus suffered this. We started at the, the day of Christ's birth. I've brought you down through scriptures through the day of his death. And what I hope that you can see from our study tonight is Jesus lived a life that was characterized by suffering. He knew suffering long before he went to that cross. Yeah, he knew suffering. All this behooves us to ask the question, why? Why would he choose to subject himself to so much suffering? It's an important question. I think we get the answer from Hebrews chapter 5. That's where we started tonight, Hebrews chapter 5. I want to go back there. And I want us to see what we should learn from Christ's sufferings. What does the Lord want us to learn from all this? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Though he were a son, yet he, Jesus, learned obedience 
by the things which he suffered. What did Jesus learn through all of these sufferings? The Bible says he learned obedience. You know what that is? Complete and total submission to the will of God his Father. That's what Jesus learned through all of these sufferings. Guess what Jesus wants us to learn from his sufferings? Very same thing. Obedience. Complete and total submission to the will of God the Father. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect or complete, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation to who? To all those who obey him. To all those who will learn obedience from his sufferings, the things he endured. To all those who will receive and believe the purpose for which he came and died and respond in obedience to that life that he lived and that death that he died. Jesus is happy to be the author of our eternal salvation. But we got to obey him, don't we? He's the author of our eternal salvation when we obey him. I want to close by asking you this question tonight. It's a very personal question. I, I hope you'll take it very personally. What would keep you not the person in front of you, not the person behind you or beside you, but what would keep you from obeying Jesus tonight? What would stand in the way between you yielding total and complete submission to the will of God the Father? I've been doing this long enough to learn. I'm still learning, by the way. I've been doing this long enough to learn that there are several things that keep people from obeying Jesus. One of them is pride. And listen... I'm no stranger to pride. I, I have to battle my own pride. I know that pride keeps people from obeying Jesus. And if pride is keeping you from obeying the Lord tonight, would you take that pride and would you kill it and would you crucify it tonight and take it out of the way in light of the things that Jesus suffered for you? Would you make your pride suffer tonight? And take it out of the way so that Jesus can become the author of your eternal salvation. Would you do that tonight? Maybe it's just flat out stubbornness. People can be stubborn. Hey, I can be stubborn. Just, just ask my wife. She'll tell you all day long how stubborn I can be. Stubbornness keeps people from obeying God. It does. But my plea with you tonight would be this. In light of all the things Jesus suffered for you, would you not make your stubbornness suffer and die and take it out of the way so you can obey God and so that Christ can be the author of your eternal salvation? I'll tell you something else keeps people from obeying God is procrastination. We get to thinking, well, I don't have to, to take care of this tonight. I can do it tomorrow. I can do it next week. I can do it next year at some more convenient time. I, I, I will obey God, but I'll do that some other time. I... I'm guilty of procrastination. I do it sometimes too. But when it comes to the salvation of your soul, don't procrastinate. Don't procrastinate. In light of everything Jesus suffered for you, if procrastination is keeping you from obeying the Lord, would you not make that procrastination suffer and die 
and put it to death and get it out of the way so that you can obey God and so that Jesus can be the author of your eternal salvation. Whatever it is, I don't care what it is. Put it to death tonight. Put it to death tonight in light of everything that Jesus suffered for you. Are we willing to suffer a little bit tonight so that he could be the author of our eternal salvation? Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about what you have heard, email us at cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook at facebook.com backslash wheelerareacfc.com.